The Athletic. I find it interesting that a lot of fans uh, in one breath are saying, I don't want another big name, big ego manager. We've done that with Mourinho and we've done that with Conte, it didn't work. Then in the next breath, I can't believe we're not getting Nagelsmann. I wanted Nagelsmann. Hello and welcome one and all once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. And it's from The Athletic um, that I'm joined today by both uh, Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. I'm Danny Kelly, your host. Hello, Jack. Hi. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Danny. It's an audio format still, and I need to establish they really are there, and I'm not going to be doing some kind of impression of Jack out the side of my mouth. On this, and of course, that could still have been an impression. How do you know that wasn't really me just putting him on? Uh, Charlie I, is a really good mimic. Go on. Who's who's your who's your who's your best, Charlie? Um, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't want to say best, but yeah, there are, there are a few. I could, that's always been my party piece down the years. I at love school that though. Give me an example. Things. No, don't you don't do it. Just tell me who you think you can do. Um, what in the in the footballing world? In any in in any sphere you like. <laughs> well, a lot of them are my former teachers. Very good. Yes. Um, who do I think I can in? There, there oh, Jack, you, you teed him up here, man. And, this, and now Sorry, I feel like I've kind of put... I tried to be nice, but I feel like I've actually put... Oh, he's mumbling spot. and stuttering. Come on, man. Come on. Football. If you listen to football cliches, you'll hear Charlie doing good voices and stuff. Yeah, good plug for that podcast. I, I have got a more <laughs> binary approach. I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't mm. say I was... A, yeah, very good. Um, I wouldn't say I was a good mimic, but I can do four people. My dad, um, the former reviews editor of Q magazine, John Azelwood, the 1960s and 70s folk troubadour Donovan, um, and who is the fourth one? Oh, former PFA chairman Gordon Taylor. I used to Gordon Taylor so much um, and so accurately uh, on, a, on on the radio that he eventually complained to the management of Talk Sport about my far too good <laughs> impression of Gordon Taylor discussing how many paintings he had bought compared to how many footballs were in the union. I'm not going to do it now, but uh, later on, you you liven yourself up, Charlie, and we'll do a special episode of The View from the Lane around impressions, and we'll do conversations between my dad and whoever you think you can do, or <laughs> Donovan and whoever you think you can do. You got a speciality, Jack, or are you keeping all that, keeping out of this? I'm not very good at voices. Sadly. Okay, all right, that's that's very sad to hear. Uh, on, when we do eventually get this episode rolling, we'll be discussing uh, um, what I'm really trying to do is to avoid discussing that two-one defeat at Aston Villa, which has almost nailed Spurs, as far as I can see, looking at the fixtures, to the Conference League for next season. Hooray, hurrah, bunting. Um, and uh, we'll also be talking about, uh, you know, the Nagelsmann thing. Was he ever really in the running and all the rest of it? Um, so it should be a belt. We've also got some great emails from you to discuss. Let's start, though. We have to start with a match at uh, Villa at halftime. I, I, I tweeted an award-winning uh, precy of the proceedings. Uh, laughable but not funny first half by Spurs. Kane out of position, random passing, pointless low block, all forwards permanently offside, and a press that would shame a team of sickly children, I said. Um, you were there, Charlie. Um, it's probably worse than that, wasn't it? <laughs> the first it half. It was really bad. Mm. I, like, really bad. To the point where it wasn't even a particularly raucous atmosphere because it was so uncompetitive that the Villa fans weren't even that into it they were sort of just sitting back and waiting for the next chance to present itself um they should have been further ahead and i remember this game last season uh villa park which spurs won 4-0 but the first half was 
only 1-0. And Villa had way the better of it. They missed loads of chances and then paid for it. Spurs pulled away in the second half. And I thought the only thing they can cling on to is whether Villa come to regret all these missed chances and um, the dominance that they had. And they they nearly did in the end. I mean, they Spurs could have um, salvaged the draw late on if Son had timed his run a little better. And obviously that was a recurring theme in the game. Nine offsides in total. A, a record, I think, for some, crazy. some considerable time in the Premier League. It wasn't like a Premier League record, which I can't... So basically it was the most since... Oh, it was actually the most in... It equaled the most... Um, Newcastle had nine against Liverpool in April 2022. Brentford had 10 against City last season. Spurs last had nine plus against Watford in December 2017. It was pretty amazing, wasn't it, watching both Son and Richarlison constantly start, not get into an off, but start in an off-side position. Very odd. Very, very odd indeed. Yeah, and, it, and, and also there's this thing which obviously winds everyone up about linesmen being told not to put up their flags. And that's another VAR thing because the reason they don't, obviously, is in case they get it wrong and they want the player to be able to go through and score and then VAR can check it. So it's another sort of frustration people have with VAR. And the lineman was almost, you know, he was apologetic about a couple of them. Like, you know, I don't really want to be doing this, but uh, this is what I've been told to do and, and have to do. And so you had this farcical situation of Son running through. Everyone kind of knows he's offside. Then he rounds the keeper, hits the post, then it comes out and, and Kane's effort saved. And then the flag goes up and it's all just a big waste of time. Much like much of this season for Spurs. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and, you know, I know this is football cliches territory. Somebody's going to get hurt going through on the goalkeeper, aren't they, when the re- the game could have been stopped when it's obviously offside. Somebody's going to break a leg go, you know, going into a 50-50 with the goalkeeper and then there'll be mayhem about the whole thing. I, I don't know, Jack, what... It struck me that um, you know we were starting to become comfortable with the idea that Ryan Mason had at least started to get a tune out of these. The most striking thing was the the lack of dynamism. That's a that's code. Sorry, Danny, don't hide behind words. The lack of effort. Static players passing to other static players. No running off the ball whatsoever, except for the two people are offside by running off the ball the entire time. Um, and the truth of the matter is, uh, the players here. I'm sure they were ashamed of themselves at half time because if you can't get it up for your mate, and he is mates with half these people, um, then they're just replicating their listless carelessness of the most of the rest of the season. I was I was appalled. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably suggests that even though I do think Mason has improved Spurs in terms of the sort of atmosphere behind the scenes, like pulling everyone together, you know, getting people enjoying training again. Um, I think his tactics have been a bit better. In-game management has been better. There's only that can only go so far. Like that, you we we kind of saw a little bit of this. I think when he took over two years ago, you know, you, you can inspire a bit of an improvement. But ultimately, if you are taking over a bunch of players whose uh, confidence has just been destroyed by this season, then you know, naturally things are going to, even if there's a bit of a bounce, things are going to come back down to earth because you don't have those kind of ingrained ingrained attitudes, ingrained mentality, uh, which is, you know, which pushes people ideally towards performing at their absolute best week in, week out. So clearly this is a kind of, you know, with every new management bounce, eventually the ball, you know, gravity takes over and the ball descends back towards earth. There is, there is a, you know, there is a median, isn't there? I mean, I, I, I think as well, I'm going to be, Talk about individuals here. Hoiberg has played every second of the season. Um, Oliver Skip has played every second since he came back from a year-long injury once he was required. They look absolutely knackered, the pair of them, to me. 
I mean, there are two things on that. One was last week, last Friday was the year anniversary since the North London derby, the three nil, and and uh, off the back of that, I rewatched that game, did a piece on sort of how has so much changed in only a year, and one of the things that jumped out at me watching that game was seeing Bentancur again and how unbelievably good he is and what a different. And we all know that, but still, in his absence, he's become caca, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean that that, that does tend to happen, but like honestly. It was kind of reassuring because sometimes you can rewatch players or and think, oh, actually, did I misremember it? But actually, he, what he does, like his ability to just drop deep, pick the ball up, drive forward, Spurs can actually play out. And you see with guys like Royale and Sanchez who played in that North London derby, they feel so much more assured on the ball because they know they've always got an option. He can come and he, and he doesn't just get it. He'll get it. He'll drop a shoulder. He'll he'll move Spurs about the pitch. So that was a huge thing. And I also think Basuma coming back was almost bittersweet because he made a massive difference when he came because on. Because he's a really good footballer, Antonio. He's a great footballer. Yeah. I mean, I was so excited when Spurs signed him a year ago. I thought he was a player they should have got loads of times before. I thought that made so much sense. And I think he, him and Benton Kerr... to Christmas next year, him and Benton Kerr. Yeah, yeah, hope so. And, so, and, so, and somebody who can pass the ball as well in midfield, you know, it's all yeah, possible. Yeah, th- those two injuries, they've just made such a di- And, you know, it's not fashionable to moan about injuries, and, and I get that, but I think it's also okay to say they have made a big difference in Spurs. Spurs miss them so much. Hoybier and Skip are both very good players, but they're very similar players, and together there's just not enough thrust. And also, given the issue that we've talked about, the uh, Ian Wright flagged up on match of the day on Saturday night about Spurs the fact that Villa actually played quite a dangerous game because Villa obviously had a really high line but with not a lot of pressure on the ball and that a, re- a good team should have been able to pick them off and obviously a big part of that is Son of a Charlatan timing their runs so badly but another part of that is the lack of quality of, of forward passing from midfield you know Biasuma's coming back from an injury Benton Kerr's injured Winks and Ndombele are out on loan and Tottenham really don't have players who can play those clever passes through the opposition defence onto a perfectly timed run. So clearly Unless this is Kane. an area where... Yeah, exactly. The only player they've got in the team who can do that is Kane. So clearly this is an area where Tottenham need to improve. Um, and you're right to mention Kane. That he, In fact, it was his through balls that tend to be catching the lads offside. Um, I did not like Kane playing as a 10. Um, which he did there with uh, Richarlison ahead of him. and I'll, uh, It was also, his, winning the penalty was Kane making a run and beating the offside trap. I mean, I said in the first half, I was like, it, this doesn't feel sustainable for Villa because you only need to get one wrong. Sure. And they and luckily for them, by that point, they had enough of a margin, but they did get one wrong. Kane goes through, rounds the keeper, gets a penalty. And yeah, had, had I thought that was interesting, the, the match today analysis, because they were quite annoyed, clearly, with how the Spurs forwards just weren't... Because you you were saying before um, about a lack of effort, Danny, and I think... I don't know if it's lack of effort or a lack of focus or a combo of the two, but timing a run... Like, they've, they they practice that all the time. Bending a run is something that any forward, especially someone like Son who plays on the shoulder of the last defender... And remember, that it, it reminded me a bit of that Southampton game where Son scored four and Kane just kept dropping in and, you know, picking Son out and he would run through and score, like... Once you realise that's what teams do, I mean, you know, obviously it's easier said than done, but they are able to do that when they're sure. really on it. Yeah, I mean, and part of the problem I thought was Kane starting, as I said, as a ten. Everyone knows he can play as ten, but he has to play as a ten, having started at nine. And here's the reason. And if uh, Ryan Mason or anyone else is listening, I'm sure they are. 
It's, it, it's, it's startlingly obvious. When he starts at nine and comes into the midfield, he is running away from his marker, one of two masonry-browed centre-halves at the back. When he starts at 10, somebody's already marking him, and they roughed him up, and they tactically fouled him. John McGinn couldn't wait to get after him. Um, and, I'm, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the midfield battle. He can't start at 10. That It just makes him a target for everybody else. And he did really well, uh, you know, getting those balls through to the people are offside. But he is much more dangerous when he falls from nine to ten because he's already gone away from his marker. And of course, you know, we need to speak the unspeakable. We have tried uh, to give Richarlison a chance. We have noted the difficulty of a season broken up by a World Cup and injuries. Um, he just looks like he's never kicked football before. It's bouncing off at the most extraordinary angles, um, and you know, adding to what was. A terrible result, which is, am I right, Jack, in thinking now that we better prepare, prepare ourselves for the trips to Karabag and Zivzniag? Yes, I suppose the seventh now. They're ahead of Aston Villa only on goal difference. I think that Tottenham have got easier games over the last two, uh, Brentford at home and Leeds away. That said, obviously, if it's you know if Leeds needs something to stay up on the final day of the season, then that will be difficult. Um, Aston Villa have got... Liverpool away, which I think will be tough, and then Brighton at home. Very difficult which fixtures. Probably, uh, which is probably, a, yeah. Can I use the phrase, can I use the phrase, all conquering Brighton on this particular weekend? <laughs> I think I can. <laughs> so, at the moment, I think, yeah, Spurs are, Spurs are probably looking good for seventh, but it's probably not a lock yet. But yeah, I think we should all get prepared for Europa Conference League fun next season. You, Yeah, you two have some lovely journeys to cities you've never heard of, never mind been to. Yeah, professionally, I'm really up for the Conference League. I mean, obviously, Europa League, ideally, even if I think for the team, I think the best thing would be not to be in it, but we've, we've been over that. Um, I mean, Villa, it is amazing. When Emery took over, they were 14 points behind Spurs. They've closed that gap to nothing. There's no points between them. I mean, it's, it's obviously speaks to how good a job he's done, but also to be picking up that. His first match was start of November. He came in late October. To have To have been 14 points worse off than Aston Villa in that period. No disrespect to them. They're, they, they've done really well and I think they're, they're building a really good team, but it does show kind of the level of underachievement. Spurs' form, Spurs's form, let's be honest, if they've been in the, in the bottom half of the table, let's say they've been 10th um, when Conte went, they'd, they'd, they'd be fighting relegation now. They're just not picking up any points, are they? And their away form is dreadful. They haven't, they haven't won away since January. They've hardly they outside avoided of London defeat. Since They've hardly avoided defeat. They get beat every time they play away from home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And and I know, Danny, you talk about, and I think this is an interesting idea, the set, you know, away form does really show a team's It's the test metal, of their metal. Exactly that. Yeah. I think it is. You know, yeah. And, and Premier, you know, Premier League away games, they're all difficult in their different ways. There are very few now you say, oh yeah, that's, that's a banker. Yeah. Oh, that's true. You have to, you have to almost claw these results away from home out of the cold, hard ground. Of course you do, but that's exactly. the test. That and is the test. Totally. And so when you're not really at it, and and I just thought they weren't. And I said this to Mason. I think he bristled at, at the suggestion that they lacked intensity. They did. In this game, but certainly in the first half, like because I think to be fair, under you know, I more meant it in a comp as a compliment in a way, in the sense that I feel like under Mason, at least generally, they've looked. Like they've had a bit more about engaged them. in the in the actual process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Whereas this felt like a return to the sort of apathy of Stellini and late Conte, where they'd go away and just be like, what, you know, what, what are they doing? You just think about the away metal of teams. Think about it. There's a way in which we already, the code is already there. Everybody is fighting relegation. We always say, well, this will be decided by their home form because useless teams can't play away from home. That's the rule. Um, and, and, you know, it is a hard league, and I, that's why it's such fun. And that's why you have to build teams with some resilience away from home. Now, the job of building this team um, is going to be decided by somebody who's going to be the manager sooner or later. 50 days today, everybody. Congratulations. Um, I suppose there'll be some kind of party um, in um, Hotspur House, or whatever it's called, Lily, Lily White Court. I'm not sure what they call the headquarters. So there. we're only three weeks away from equaling... Three weeks and a day away from equaling last time. Should we run a sweepstake on how many? I'd love days to. Do you, think, love do you to. think it will get to? What's the over under? Do you think it will get to seventy two again, or do you I, think we'll no heading into the eighty? I think yes. You think it'll be wrapped up in the next three weeks? Nope. Yeah. Eccleshead knows something. Am I the new manager, Charlie? Am I? <laughs> this could be a bet. This could be a bet. Actually, Charlie thinks it will be under seventy two. Yeah, I think it'll be over seventy two. Okay, a sportsman's bet, okay. very much. Sportsman's so bet. you and I both think they're going to let this drag on and on and on. Well, we know it's not going to be Vincent Company for reasons that you know obvious. Um, we know it's not going to be uh, Maurizio Pochettino, about which we should talk as well. Um, and apparently, it's not going to be Julian Nagelsmann. I'm not. Too, I'm not too upset about that for various reasons, but I'm interested in the process. So I think, from Spurs's perspective, that clearly. Clearly, Nagelsmann was a candidate. Clearly, he was under consideration. He was on the short list. And clearly, there would have been talks. I'm sure, I know he didn't reach the, you know, he didn't get a formal in, face-down one-on-one interview. But clearly, there have been talks going on in the background. Um, and clearly, those talks have broken down. Because that that is what led us to the situation on Friday. Um I think there's look. I think in any breakup, each partner, each party wants to portray themselves as the one who pulled the plug. Like that's that that is perfectly natural and normal. And I think in any in any in any process like this, in any managerial process, there's always a degree of each party wanting to save face when something um, when something falls apart. You know, we saw this, for example, but incredibly recently with with uh, Nagelsmann and Chelsea, where clearly they spoke to clearly Nagelsmann spoke to Chelsea. Uh, it fell apart, and then you know there were there were differing theories from diff- from each side as to who pulled the plug on whom. What we should say is that there's no, you know, Nag- as far as I know, Nagelsmann's camp have not offered any competing theories on this, um, but. Clearly, if you look at the reaction of Spurs fans on social media over the last weekend, Spurs fans don't buy it. They don't buy the idea that Tottenham have kind of independently and unilaterally decided last week, oh, actually, we're not going to offer an interview to this guy. Actually, we we decide, we think that he is no longer the right fit for us. You know, people, pe- pe- fans are not buying it. I just think with it, like the... Spectre of 2021, that 72-day search looms large over this. I think so much of it is, understandably, I guess, like Spurs don't want to be in a position where it's it's very out there 
um, it's very known that certain people didn't want the job and therefore by the time you get to your eighth choice or whatever Nuno was, he's a lame duck, essentially. You know, I think they they really want whoever comes in for fans to have an open mind about and not be thinking, oh, but he's it's not Nagelsmann or it's not Pochettino or whoever. And there, there probably will be an element of that, whatever happens. My view on this is you, if you're confident in who you bring in, I don't think, if Spurs announce Amarim, for instance, in a couple of weeks, I really don't, I think because he's a good candidate, I don't think Spurs are going to be saying, oh, but I wanted company. I wanted Nagelsmann. I wanted, maybe some will still be saying I wanted Pochettino. If you bring in a good candidate, I don't think you really have that problem. The problem with Nuno is that he was no one's candidate, including <laughs> including Tottenham. turned out half the people of Spurs, yeah. Yeah, so that so that was the issue there. So I think a lot of it is is about shaping the narrative. I mean, think about Conte in, in, that, in that summer of 2021. Now, some people at Spurs might say, yes, he turned the club down but there was also an element of them balking at his demands and saying well we just can't give you that but the but the narrative you know i think that was shaped more on his side than the clubs was very much he didn't want it and that does then affect how the club is viewed how their search is viewed so you know it it's like political briefing it's 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 all about shaping the narrative and as jack said it did remind me of you know, when you're in sort of year eight, year nine, and you're starting to date girls, and you preemptively break up with them because you don't want that. You know, you don't want to be seen to be the one that's being dumped, and you. So, you know, it's it's kind of this weird game that's going on. I tweeted out soon after it that I never felt he was quite the right fit, and got a lot of pushback on that. And I did then explain with a few more to my set. That's not me saying I don't think Nagelsmann's a good manager. I don't think Carlo Ancelotti would be a good fit right now. Doesn't think I don't, doesn't mean I don't think he's a good manager. I just never got the sense at any point that A, it really seemed like it was going to happen. B, that he seemed desperate for it. C, that they seemed like they were particularly aligned on the, the stages that they're at in their careers or their journeys. It just didn't feel quite right. And I think that's borne out by the fact it didn't happen because clearly neither party... And whether you think it was more Nagelsmann or War Spurs, but between them, the two parties didn't really think it was a good idea either. I, yeah, I kind of agree with Charlie. I don't think... Look, Nagelsmann's obviously a really good coach. He wouldn't have been my choice for Tottenham this summer, uh, in part because, well, if you if you read about what went wrong from at Bayern Munich, for example, the issue seemed to be his personal relationships with the dressing room. And I think Tottenham is... Tottenham is politically a really difficult job at the moment because... You know the the club's a mess. Everyone confidence is on the floor. You've got to get everyone pulling back in the same direction. It's that there's no at the moment there's no managing director of football, so there's no there's not much of a structure on top of you, which actually you know only adds to the internal political difficulties of doing the job. And so it's uh, you need somebody I think with amazing people skills because I mean. Tottenham talk about this a lot. You know, we want to go back to the Pochettino 2014 era. We want a cultural improvement, everyone pulling in the same direction. If you do that, you need somebody who can really connect with people. Um, and if you, I mean, I, and I, when you read about how overbearing Nagelsmann was at Bayern 
how he fell out with the players. I don't feel like he would represent that kind of cultural reset, let's get everyone singing from the same hymn sheet type thing at all. So I totally appreciate why. I know that some Spurs fans thought he would be amazing because of how good he is tactically. I think that's totally fair enough. But he wouldn't necessarily have been my choice. But I do I do totally agree with what Charlie said, which is that if they'd announced a different manager, nobody would really have really cared why they hadn't got Nagelsmann. It just wouldn't have been a story. And yet now... Um, because of the way this has been handled over the weekend, the fact that it's not going to be Nagelsmann is a story. And people are saying, well, why why isn't it going to be Nagelsmann? Um, So yeah, in that sense, I feel like it's kind of backfired a little bit on Tottenham this. And it's got people asking questions which they probably would rather people weren't asking. All I will add to this is that um, he's managed to hold his tongue for a few weeks. um, But Thomas Muller, the great Thomas Muller, I think it's fair to say, um, is not one for holding his tongue. And in the post-match interview after the Bayern Munich game at the weekend, when asked about Nagelsmann, he didn't, um, it, it wasn't the words, it was his body language. He was virtually doing river dance in celebration of the departure of the manager. All right, if Nagelsmann is one that hasn't arrived, um, we are going to have to face, and I've been putting it off, I've been hoping that secretly this wouldn't happen and um, he would arrive at Spurs, I guess. Um, and that is that Pochettino will be announced as the Chelsea manager sometime in the next 48 hours. Um, I've known it, you know, we've all known it for a couple of weeks now. I was working with some Chelsea folk um, two weeks ago and they were getting texts saying it's done. Uh, it's just a question of him doing Because he, he does the negotiations for the backroom staff himself. So it takes a little bit of a, of a while. Hats off to him. He, he needs to work. He'll always be a hero to me, all that sort of thing. I'm not going to be calling him a scum and a traitor like other people on Twitter. But, um, Charlie... He's been there, and apparently the phone has not been picked up even to explore the possibility of a, an appointment that if it had come, they're all gambles, no one could say for certain it would have worked out, it would have at least bought Daniel Levy goodwill and time, two things that he's very short on of at the moment. What are we to read is this? Did Were things so bad at the end of his tenure at Spurs that they could never have gone back to him? Because people want to know why that wasn't explored, at least out of due diligence. I think that is there is an element of that. There are people who feel that we, as Pochettino files, slightly glorify um, the whole thing. You know that 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 we ignore the fact that it did go toxic towards the end. You know, the club was not a happy place for quite some time, really. Probably the majority of 2019. Um, you know that things really. And certainly by the end, it was pretty bad. And so I think there there was a sense among some that do we really want to go back to all that? How much, you know, continuing the relationship analogies, how much are these issues really resolved? How much are we kind of kidding ourselves? Um, and would they just play out again? Would those tensions play out again? And also, I agree with you that like the politically, it certainly would have been a, a very smart, move for Daniel Levy to make. I guess there's an extent to which we can't have it both ways because, you know, do do we want a chairman who makes decisions that he thinks are politically expedient and to appease the fans or do we want someone who does what he thinks is is right? (laughs) Some would probably want the former, but I think from his point of view, he'd probably think, I need to, I don't think this is right and people will disagree with that, um, but I've got to follow those instincts rather than do what as long the as long want. as it is as long as it is thought through like that and not just wounded pride and the fact they would have to be seen to be backing down and 
re-employing somebody who previously got rid of in the past. Of course, um, the European clubs, who he so admires, they do it all the time. Look at Allegri at Juventus. Yeah. No, and, and the really interesting wrinkle about that and something that Jack and I have spoken about is they did make an approach in 2021. It was on the table then. So it's interesting what's changed from then to now. And I don't know, Jack, if you have sort of theories on that. Yeah, it's something that I, that I wonder about a lot. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, as Charlie says, probably if this was going to, if this was really going to work, there would have to be some kind of very honest re-examination of what went wrong last time and why why it fell apart and in which both sides would probably have to do in which both sides would probably have to admit that they made mistakes because clearly both each side did make mistakes at the back end at the back end of sort of the 2018-19 era you know i don't pochettino i don't think was very um i don't think pochettino really encourage the right atmosphere in that in that last you know particularly in the uh, summer 2019 start of the 1920 season before he was sat I don't think Levy delivered before Pochettino what he needed to keep the team going particularly in 2018 and in terms of the the lack of sales of players so I think may maybe the point is that each side would have had and this is just, just, just me hypoth- this is just me speculating here maybe each side would have had to admit that they were wrong a bit for this to work out and clearly you know I, I i don't think i think it's i think it suits both sides to start afresh to be honest even though i completely understand the argument for getting him back and i of course i understand why fans wanted him back i part of me thinks that each side certainly that the, daniel levy and tottenham on one hand and Pochini on the other will probably be better off for not for not doing this all again and not going and not kind of dredging up what you didn't start, you know we got this wrong in 2018 or well, you got that wrong in 2019 all that kind of stuff i don't think that that would have helped anyone but yeah it's it the interesting thing is that a lot of daniel levy's decisions over the years have been taken with popularity in mind i know that you know fans obviously hate him at the moment and i know that it looks like he's trying to be unpopular but i really don't think he is i really think he is you know, popularity and what the fans think is hugely important to him. And that's why I always thought, as I would have said on this podcast many times, I did think that eventually Daniel Levy would cave to the fan pressure and put the call into Pochettino. And so the fact that he hasn't has surprised me. And in that sense, it makes it an unusual decision for Levy because he's taken such, you know, a brave and unpopular stance. I mean, in a way, yeah, the where we are is partly because... Levy did make those populist decisions to bring in Mourinho and Conte, which spoke to a perceived need anyway to, amongst the fan base, we have to win a trophy. We have to win a trophy. Okay, what's the quickest, most expedient way we can win a trophy? By bringing in Jose Mourinho or Antonio Conte, because they that cannot fail. They win trophies absolutely everywhere they go. So th- those were kind of populist decisions, Um so, yeah, it's interesting. And I do think as well on Nagelsmann, I find it counterintuitive in a way. Like, I, again, whoever you want as your man, as the manager is totally up to you. But I find it interesting that a lot of fans uh, in one breath are saying, I don't want another big name, big ego manager. We've done that with Mourinho and we've done that with Conte. It didn't work. Then in the next breath, I can't believe we're not getting Nagelsmann. I wanted Nagelsmann. He is that. Like, yes, I know that the the counter is yes, but he's younger. He's more tactically innovative. I get that. But you are you are again bringing in a 
big name, big ego, very demanding. And again, and this is what's interesting for a lot of people, those things that slightly put me off and sounds like slightly put Jack off of how abrasive he is, how much he's going to rub some of the players up the wrong way. A lot of people will be listening saying, yeah, great. That's what these players need. I just don't think in 2023 that really works so well. And, and whether that's right or that's wrong, whether you think the players are snowflakes who need to kick up the arse, just doesn't really work. Look, we're living in, in a very, very strange world, manager it was. A lot of it is distorted by the black hole that is Pep Guardiola because nobody is him. He is so far ahead of all of the rest of them with all due respect, some wonderful coaches. He is so far ahead of the rest of them that he almost distorts the market of what we expect. And let's be honest, we've ended up is the is 2023 and three clubs in the Premier League have ended up with Sam Allardyce, Sean Dyche and Roy Hodgson in charge. So sitting here talking about um, you know tactical innovation and getting in people from the continent and all the rest of it, it is a very, very strange world we inhabit currently um, about coaches. They're either over-promoted and over-hyped, and I'm not going to – there's no names, no patrol there, or – um, there are people that are, I mean, Tony Pulis must be fuming that he hasn't been re-employed by in the Premier League. This, Pards. It, it'd be looking, oh, Pards would be going mad. Um, it just, just extraordinary what's going on there. So let me ask you this then. If the emotional favourite, Pochettino, is going to Chelsea, and if the logical big name um, Nagelsmann choice is not coming, as I said uh, on Twitter, um, our friend... Daniel Levy, better have a very large rabbit in the hat. Um, in fact, I don't think there's a hat big enough to take the rabbit he's going to have to produce now. And and who is that going to be? I see the names, Arna Slot and Roberto De Zerbi and Xabi Alonso and Ruben Amarim, um, and they're all fa- fantastic coaches as far as, as can be measured. Um, is this – I don't mean to, to denigrate either of you two or any of your colleagues – is this list real or have Spurs played their cards so close to their chest? Jack, I'll throw you the hand grenade. Um, let me just pull the pin. Um, is this list made up? Is it is it kind of best guess informed guesswork? Or is do have they really got a list that they're working through? The, the managers you mentioned are all candidates. They have all been under consideration. At have time. they spoken to any of them or their representatives? They will have been speaking to representatives interviews i believe are coming at the probably at the end of the season obviously there's a difficulty with you know uh arranging arranging face-to-face interview one-on-one interviews with people who are currently busy managing other teams um i equally it's worth saying that tottenham are running trying to run this with incredible privacy uh, compared to 2021, where it was, they were, you know, stumbling around in full view of the public uh, as they lurched from one managerial option to the next. So, which in part is why it was so interesting when the Nagelsmann news emerged on Friday, because up to that point, this had been a very, very closely guarded process. My person, I mean, look, I said on this podcast the other, I don't know, a month ago maybe, that I thought I would be surprised if it wasn't Nagelsmann or Luis Enrique. You know, that's not looking so clever now because it's clearly not going to be Nagelsmann and it feels a little bit like Luis Enrique's name is fading a bit from the conversation since Fabio Paratici left. Um, so look, I'm not going to bullshit. Like, I don't, I don't know who it's going to be. My sense is that 
all of those candidates, I don't think there's like a huge hierarchy of likelihood between them. I think it feels pretty open to me. I wouldn't be surprised, and I would not be surprised if other candidates entered the thinking. You know, again, throw it back to throw it back to 2021. Tottenham had a list. They worked on the list through through April and May, and then it came to the end of May, and they tried to get Pochettino, and then they tried to get Conte, and then they tried to get Fonseca, and then they tried to get Catuso, and then they ended up with Nuno in late June. So look. Lots of stuff can happen. New ideas can enter the mix. New people will, you know, people, if you're an agent right now and you've got a manager, you're going to be, the first thing you're going to do is call Daniel Levy and say, Daniel, I've got this, why, why, why don't you consider my candidate? I've got this amazing candidate. He'd be perfect for you. Of course you're going to do that because you think this is my chance to get him into But Scotland. I put it to you that why can other candidates emerge? Because if you've got a strategy and you know what kind of manager you're after, the list should be solid. It should be immovable. Well, you, you know the answer. You know the answer to that question, don't you, Danny? You're, the answer is contained within your question. It just doesn't feel to me like there is a, a clear strategy from the people running the top of Tottenham. And I think lots of fans won't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. I, I can I can hardly believe those words, Jack, and I do believe you, but I, it's, it's almost impossible to believe that at the top of an organisation as large, famous, and apparently valuable as Tottenham Hotspur that there isn't a strategy. And I, I can see it from the from the stumbling about they're doing. I mean, how can you run a... You couldn't run a Welks tour like that. I mean, there are no Welks tours anymore. But also implied, Danny, it changes when candidates turn you down. That's what happened in 2021, which they're desperate to avoid a repeat of. In fairness, I would say, and one of the reasons I felt like Nagelsmann wasn't the right fit and a bit of an outlier was because I thought he did look a little bit different profile. I think any of Slot, Deserbi, Alonso and Amarim would be great appointments if, if if one of the if one of the managers they get comes from that list i think that will be great the problem is if they have to go beyond that and then you're talking about rejigging the strategy or the approach that's when you run into problems and that's what happened in 2021 and that's what they're really really desperate to avoid all right i, I totally get that they can't um i'm, I'm sounding like the bloke on ref watch down it all right um <laughs> i i get that they can't interview people who are still in in jobs have they talked to Brendan Rodgers or Graham Potter? I've not heard Potter's name mentioned in connection with this at all. I don't see how, like, politically, like, they've had enough shit, like, getting successful former Chelsea managers, getting a failed former Chelsea manager, I think. AVB. Is not on the cards. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, Brendan Rodgers, I don't think so. As I've said many times, I quite like Brendan Rodgers, but the fan base would be. Uh, I don't think Daniel Levy is a huge. Um, uh, yeah, I, we talked about this on the pod before. I think that I don't think I can see there being a few barriers to that happening. Equally, nothing would surprise me really at this point. Um, look, and I agree with Charlie. I think all these guys are good. Like Amarim, I think is brilliant. Deserbi is a superstar. Jabi Lonzo is hugely exciting. Arna Slot's done incredibly well. Won in the Holland. title yesterday. Even if yeah. it's you know, and and Postecoglou who you know, has been spoken about a bit in this. I think he's an, a brilliant bloke, has done amazingly at Celtic, has had a fascinating career. I think he'd be fantastic. So I think it's it's really plausible that Tottenham end up with a good outcome here. As, and by good outcome, I mean not a Nuno outcome. Because the problem with 2021 is the process was an utter shambles and the outcome was a disaster. You know, in this time, as much as we'd like to, as much as I've been comparing it to 2021, the process... Well, it's kind of hard to judge in quite the same way as 2021. I don't think it's I don't think it's as much of a shambles as 2021, and the outcome could well be much better than Nuno. 
I think it's actually, at this point, it's unlikely that the outcome is as bad as Nuno was. So it's not necessarily going to be a Nuno-level outcome. But, and, and, and if it's one of these guys we've been talking about, that's a good outcome. These guys are good. They're good coaches. And I think they would give Tottenham what they want. The thing is, the, the problem is that because of everything that's happened at Tottenham over the last few years, fans are naturally and, and understandably incredibly anxious about this. And as I've said many times, they won't give Tottenham the benefit of the doubt. Until they see the manager being paraded, until they're confident that that manager's the right guy to deliver what Spurs want, fans won't give Spurs the benefit of the doubt. And that is the problem that Spurs have got at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back to The View from Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitbrook are here with me. I mean, it's just as well, isn't it? Otherwise, it'd be just me and my impressions of the reviews editor of Q. You don't need that for entertainment. Um, lots of uh, questions. First of all, a little fact for you. Uh, today, we're recording this on, on Monday. Um, so on this day in 1963, a little bit of history for you. Um, Spurs stunned Europe with a 5-1 victory. Um, in the Cup Winners' Cup final against the holders, Atletico Madrid in Rotterdam, see Spurs become the first British club to lift a European trophy. Um, hugely important because, if you remember, English clubs um, kind of poo-pooed the European uh, tournaments when they started in the mid-50s. Um, very sniffy. We didn't enter. Teams didn't enter um, the, the, the European Cup for the first couple of years. And eventually Spurs win this trophy. Um, of course, when they won the UEFA Cup in the early 70s, that meant they were the first British club to win two different European trophies. And I, without going back to 2019, every single uh, waking moment, um, they would have completed the set there had they beaten Liverpool in that final. We'll never escape, Danny. We are never going to escape from 2019. It's all we... It's all every. It, every single Tottenham conversation comes back to 2019. It's it's completely it's unavoidable. And maybe and as Charlie said before, this, this is perhaps the kind of the cold logic at the heart of not going back to Pochettino. Is the fact that if it had been Pochettino, it just would have been 2019 even all over again, even more so. Um, sometimes you do need to break with history, and I, that's a thought that's occurred to me, Jack, too, about the Pochettino thing. This is from our, our new email, uh, vftl at theathletic.com. Um, this comes from Ben. I think it's slightly flippant, but it ch- challenges the journalistic skills of Jack and Charlie. He says, now that Conte's gone, have the players' rights to ketchup, mayonnaise and the like been re- restored? Um, has marinara sauce subsequently been banned? Can we get a, a condiment status update, please? I realise this question might require a certain level of investigative journalism, but I feel that Charlie and Jack are up to the task. Well, um, and come on, you Spurs, says Ben. Ben, I'll save the two lads having to go into this. Let's wait till we get the new manager and then we can really ask him um, about whether um, we're going to have Heinz, Chef or Daddies um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the canteen, if that's what it's still called. My guess is that Mason is not pro-condiment. He's too I modern. No, no, they, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. He played, yeah. Under, he played under Pochettino. He's very modern. He's a player, you know, he's... He, he he was a player in the modern era. 
He's not a throwback to the catch-up days. I don't His think. body would be a, absolutely be a temple. I don't think any managers would now be letting them have sugary condiments like that. It's just it's unthinkable. Sorry about that. Not Big Sam at Leeds? No, no. He, he would tell you he's the most scientifically advanced manager of the world. He's ever the original known. innovator. I, re- I reckon there's a, I reckon there's some pro catch-up managers out there in the Premier League, but I just don't think Mason's one. Okay. Um, well, I'm trying to think now who they would be. Roy Hodgson? I can't imagine him. No, he, he, caring no he's more interested in you read Nabokov rather than what you're eating. Um, this is from Jonathan, who's picking his all-time Spurs. Now, this is really, we're going to have to just float through this because this is really the subject for a, a podcast series itself would be another award winner. Um, I asked Google's equivalent of, what the hell is that? Someone help me with that. Chat GPT. Okay, chat B. Okay, I don't know what that is. I never pretend I know what things are when I don't. Known as Bard, what Tottenham's best ever lineup was? Here is the answer that he received. Um, I won't do the uh, the uh, automated voice. Tottenham Hotspur said have a long and storied history. Story tells you it's an American site, um, and have had some of the greatest players to ever play the game in their ranks. It is difficult to choose just eleven players to represent the best ever Spurs lineup. Here is one possible selection, and it goes. Remember, this is not a human being. This is some kind of bot. Um, Hugo Lloris in goal. A back four of Ledley King, Danny Blanchflower, Jan Vertonghen and Gary Mabbott. Uh, a midfield of uh, Glenn Hoddle, David Ginola, Paul Gascoigne and Christian Eriksen. And up front, um, Jimmy Greaves, Harry Kane and Cliff Jones. Is that, that a 4-4-3? Four, four, that's, that's, that's 12 players. That's Todd Bowley. It's Todd, Todd Bowley, the owner. He must be the owner of this and team. And Stuart Pearce, the day he picked his first Nottingham Forest team and his wife pointed out at the breakfast table. Stuart, you've got a very strong 11 there and a goalkeeper. Um, so this is <laughs> stupid. I must admit, I went through it. Um, six of those, I think, would have made my all-time um, Spurs 11. But the alarm bells are ringing with Hugo Lloris because clearly Pat Jennings is Spurs' greatest ever goalkeeper. Brilliant, though, until the last couple of weeks, Lloris has been... Yesterday, for what it was worth, gentlemen and ladies listening, was the sixth anniversary of the last game at White Hart Lane, the old White Hart Lane, and now I am risking tears running down my fat and rather overcooked face. They finished second, having been uh, unbeaten at home all season. Um, Let me just uh, recall the day. Uh, Were you two there for the last day at the lane? I was, yeah. Um, were you in the in the press section then? Yeah, really close to the front. I found some old photos which I've um, that I had from that day, which I put on my on my work Instagram account um, yesterday, and it, I'd kind of forgotten how close we were. We were so close to the front; it's amazing. And so when everybody charged onto the pitch straight afterwards, it was all happening, you know, ten fifteen yards in front of us. Well, this this was in the the horrible days before I knew you. I was about I, I was perhaps six yards looking to the back of your head then because I was in the radio boxes, you know, those two stupid radio boxes. I did the uh, I did the last day there. TalkSport were very, very kind. They let me do five hours on air coming back and forth before, during and after the match uh, to talk about the stadium, what it meant and all the rest of it. And I understand, I'm not, I'm not a fool, that they, they needed a bigger stadium for all the, the very modern and well-thought-through reasons, though, you know, I'm old enough to, to, to allow myself to say, you know, I didn't want to knock down the old stadium, but it's so personal. There's just so much of my own personal cash, but more importantly, sweat, tears, um, 
and enjoyment. You should not forget that. I also had some of the most wonderful moments of my life in that football stadium. Um, and it had to go. I'm so glad that they built it on exactly the same spot. Um, the genius architects who thought about cutting off one corner so they could start the new one. Um, at least I, I feel a sense of... This is the, the exact word in English. Is I don't have to have that sense of dislocation where the, the, the location has remained the same. I think it's very, very important. So I've got the Chick King and the stadium are still very close together. It's important. Um, commercially, I guess, if you look at the figures... Um, it has been a hugely successful move for Spurs. The stadium is world famous. It uh, publicises through concerts and things. And the NFL, it publicises the club all over the world. The problem is it hasn't really improved on the pitch. I mean, is that a fair thing to say? That was a fantastic Spurs team and now we do not have a fantastic Spurs team. Well, 86 points they got that season as we so often refer to. I mean, I, th- that, that season as well, they won 17, drew two at home. Absolutely incredible, including winning four, their last 14 in a row in the league. But as, as well as being a brilliant team, it kind of, I had this feeling that season that they had this amazing capacity to kind of channel the emotional force of the stadium. You know, that it was only like two, literally two, what, two or three years before then, Spurs players would openly say they didn't enjoy playing at White Hart Lane because the atmosphere was so negative. And I remember in his first season, Pochettino said something like, oh, the pitch is kind of tight and the atmosphere doesn't really work for us. And it just, I felt like in 2014-15, at the start, White Hart Lane hindered Tottenham. But in that season, the atmosphere was so positive and Pochettino was so good at channeling that that energy and that atmosphere. And the players were so lifted by it that they were lit- they were literally unbeatable at home. And that's the you know it's 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 kind of striking how how much has changed in the last six years. Not all in one direction because there's been you know there's been some good moments as well. I suppose we're really good in the seventeen eight in the seventeen eighteen season. They got seventy seven points. They got the Champions League final the season after. They were briefly good under Mourinho. They were briefly pretty good under Conte. So it's not you know it'd be wrong to say it's been all downhill from there, but. It is it is striking how much of a difference there is between then and now. Well, um, and it does leave us in a situation where they are, depending on which matrix you use, the 10th or 11th richest club in world football. Um, as I will say, the problem is that uh, the other the other nine are all in the same league, just about. Um, but they, you know, it is open to Daniel Levy um, and whoever else he, he consults with, not me, not you, not you, certainly not the people listening, um, to make use of the extraordinary riches that come into the club in a way that will help us to get back to a day when people not only trusted the football team, but actually liked them because at the moment there's very little to like about the actual team. Individuals, yes, but the actual team is not very lovable. Speaking of which, to uh, end, I rarely am vindictive about things. I do think you should let things go, um, but... Very, very sorry for the players, uh, largely, and the supporters of Southampton. It's never fun to get relegated. But I'll make an exception in the case of Theo Walcott. Our friend um, Walcott, he is an educated lad and wants to go into football journalism. Um, he thinks that we'll all forget about um, his 2 nil gesture coming off on the stretcher in the North London derby. Um, he thought he was being clever. Well, I was delighted to see him getting relegated on the back of that. And remember, Theo... The streets never forget. Two amazing pieces in The Athletic. Charlie's piece on Christian Romero, um, whether he's a good player or not, 
and Jack's piece, which I recommend to you, even if you've got no interest in Dulwich Hamlet, about what's happening at that club and how in many ways it reflects the the area and the social mix uh, which go to the actual football club. It's a brilliant piece. They're both brilliant pieces, and I recommend them to you. If you're not already an Athletic subscriber, of course, you can't read those pieces, so sign up now to read all of those, plus the incredible Spurs coverage that goes on on The Athletic. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for one ninety nine a month uh, for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss, no doubt, Spurs' new manager and much else besides. Bless you all. The Athletic.